0: Welcome to the Sport Feels Life podcast, where we're bringing you interviews with coaches and athletes at the top of their game.
1: This is a community to support coaches, athletes, and fans who share a passion for making the world a better place through athletics. We are serving our community and providing a variety of resources to grow and win as a team in the sports we play and the life we live. We are
0: your hosts. I'm Ashley. And I'm Megan. And we're so excited to bring you all things Sport Feels Life. Dan Jansen is an American former long track speed skater and four-time Olympian who won an historic gold medal in the 1000 meter at his fourth and final Olympic Games. Born in Wisconsin, Jansen and his eight siblings were introduced to skating at a young age. He set a junior world record at age 16 during his first international competition, and he made the 1984 U.S. Olympic team just two years later. Janssen was a seven-time overall World Cup champion and two-time World Sprint champion with eight world records and over 75 World Cup medals. Despite his success outside of the Games, Jansen had not won an Olympic medal entering the final event of his Olympic career. He finished 4th in the 500 in his first Games, and he fell in the 500 and 1000 during the Olympic Winter Games in Calgary in 1988, following his sister's death due to leukemia. Jansen continued competing and training, becoming the first skater to break the 36-second barrier in the 500. He beat the 36-second barrier four times leading up to the Olympic Winter Games in Lillehammer in 1994, a feat no other skater had accomplished. Jansen finally earned his first Olympic medal in the 1000 with a world record time and subsequently won the 1994 James E. Sullivan Award for the nation's most outstanding amateur athlete. After retiring from speed skating, he worked as a CBS sports broadcaster and established the Dan Jansen Foundation to help aid in leukemia research and youth sports programs. We are so excited to bring you this episode with the one and only Dan Jansen. Hey Dan, thanks so much for joining us. We're so excited to have you today.
2: Thank you, great to be here with you.
0: Just for our listeners who might not know your story yet, would you give us a quick background on who you are and just where you are today?
2: Sure, that would take much longer than this show has, but I can <laughs> uh, I can uh, do a short version yeah I'm, <clears throat> I was a I'm a gold medalist uh, speed skater was on four Olympic teams for the United States at a long journey I was uh, sort of happy to be there in my first one when I was 18 years old and the next three I was favored, uh, favored to win. Um, I didn't win until my very last race in my fourth Olympics. I had had some issues along the way. I um, My sister passed away on the morning of my race in my, uh, in my second Olympics and uh, I fell that day and, and four days later I fell again and the story just sort of kept going from there. Um, a lot of success in the non-Olympic years and then um didn't quite happen at the Olympics until as I said my my final race thousand meters of the race I wasn't necessarily favored to win um I set a, a world record and, and I won gold in, in that last chance so it was uh you know it was a long journey but uh some good lessons along the way and and uh, turned out uh, a happy ending.
1: Looking at just going through four Olympics, being favored to win in several of them, and coming out to win in the final one, you obviously know a thing or two about resilience. So I guess, what kept you going?
2: You know, I think, uh, well, a lot of factors that kept me going. Number one, um, I, I never lost the love or passion for what I did. I, I was, I love my sport. I love to Push myself to get better every day. Um, <clears throat> number two, you know, it, it, even though it wasn't happening for me at the Olympics, I knew that I knew I was the best. I was winning everything. I um, won forty-six World Cup races along the way. You know, it was. It's not like I I had no hope at all. I was going into the Olympics was with, no, with no hope. I uh, I knew and most people knew that, that I was a top guy, and, and uh, you know, that's what makes the Olympics unique. It's it's like you can wake up one day out of four years and be sick. You can have one slip in a race that costs you a tenth of a second and not win a medal, and um, it makes it difficult, but it also makes – that's why people love the Olympics, and that's for us as as amateur athletes anyway as olympic athletes um i think that's what differentiates the olympic games from from anything else Um, and even in any other sport taking nothing away from professional sports but you know if uh they don't win the super bowl they got another one next year you know if they don't win a major in golf they might have one in two weeks three weeks from now so um it's a lot different and and it's um it's a very unique competition.
0: You know, you say like you, ha- you were certain you were the best because you had so many successes leading up to the Olympics. And then, you know, you have this kind of setback of falling during these high stakes competitions. I mean, you always hear this playing team sports and stuff like your failures and losses are character building and there's lessons to be learned there. I'm curious what lessons you were learning during that time and mm-hmm. how – that may have shaped you going into the next set of competitions or the next stage of life or whatever.
2: It, there's huge learning opportunities in, in everything. I think win or lose, the, the best thing happens to you or the worst thing happens to you. It, there's always opportunity there to learn. And you know, for me, it was you know early on anyway. When I uh, in that Olympics that I fell in, and when my sister passed, it was it was more of a something like. I can't say I didn't know it already, but sometimes you take things for granted. Sometimes you, you feel like, well, things have gone so great to this point, you know, not that there won't be setbacks, but it's, all, oh, you know, it's gonna just keep going this way. Well, then I hit, you know, the ultimate, the ultimate difficult day in, in someone's life. You know, you lose your sister and you know, you fall in the Olympics on the very same day. And then, you're questioning the importance of even the olympics why why was that so important in the first place jane's gone you know she's never going to be back she had three little baby girls um and so it's kind of a, a a fight in your mind as to um as to the importance of of things but but on the other side of that you can't um you can't just diminish what what that means there's a reason that the Olympics meant so much to me. There was a reason I trained so hard and, you know, I shouldn't be faulted for, for the importance of that. And so it took me a while, I guess, to, to get that battle between those two things straight and to say, you know, you can, you can mourn both, um, you know, in different ways at different times, but you can. And, and then, um, you can learn and you can get up and you can move on. You can move forward. And I don't, I don't think there's a, I don't think there's an easy way if it's even possible to move forward from, a from setbacks. If, if you don't learn something, if you don't take something away from that. Maybe it's as simple as the lesson I learned that you have to learn from everything. Maybe it's, maybe it's, um, I don't know. Maybe it's, maybe become a better person. I can't tell you what to learn, but I can say search for something because there's always something there.
0: As far as when, I mean, it's been quite some time, obviously, since, so your grieving process is definitely Hmm. looking different than it did during those initial days. But I'm wondering like, at what point does legacy play into that for you? And how have you, worked toward continuing your sister's legacy. I know you named one of your daughters after her. I think that's yeah. really cool. I'm just curious, like how is she living on in your life now and with your family now? You know,
2: in a lot of ways, actually. Yes, yeah, certainly my daughter Jane was maybe the initial one. You know, um, she, she was born 1993, you know, just a year, or shortly a year before my final Olympics, you know, giving her that name. I wasn't even sure about it at the time and how I felt now I couldn't be more grateful that we decided to give her that name because she's very similar in a lot of ways to her aunt Jane. But in other ways and and probably more important ways, we I started a foundation um, that we, we started giving money to research for leukemia and related cancers. It has since sort of morphed into many different things, one being the, uh, we have a, <clears throat> excuse me, what's called a family aid fund within my foundation, and we. Um, so when Jane was ill, you know we're from Wisconsin, uh, and uh, she had ever bone marrow transplant up in Seattle, and so she lived there for almost a year. My mom and dad were out there for the whole year. I was back and forth donating platelets. A lot of our family was back and forth. I'm, I'm the youngest of nine kids in my family, so we have a lot of us, and I realized the expense that that is to families, um, you know, the non-medical expenses sometimes can devastate families. You've got um, the mom or dad needs to quit their job or take take a furlough so they can be with their child while they're being treated. So we, we pay non-medical expenses for these families. We travel room and board uh, every week, Some, I mean, daily I get requests uh, for just to pay car payments Gas and electric bills, or they're going to turn off their power, things like that, and and so we um, that's become the biggest part of our fund, and it's really quite quite rewarding. We also have partnered with a, a organization called Cool Kids Campaign, we've opened a clubhouse um, here just north of Charlotte that the kids can come to, kind of get away from the hospital, get away from things. They can come. We have movie nights. We have you know, we, we personalize birthday parties for them, end of chemo parties. They can invite friends and just have fun at the clubhouse and it's for them. Um, and we opened it in, uh, almost a year ago, November of last year, unfortunately with COVID we've had, uh, close it down for a while, but we've opened up back up, you know, in ways that can be safe. And, um, so we're back on track and we're, waiting for this, um, this whole thing to go away, but, but the kids have been able to enjoy it so far.
1: I mean, that also just speaks so much to your character. It sounds like I'm hearing such a trend of you just turning failure into success and just not letting life knock you down. It's continuing to take what life throws at you and then turn it into something great. Um, so Obviously in this foundation, you're helping relieve some of the financial burden as well as the emotional burden In going through such a difficult life circumstance, what role would you say that sports plays in that for yourself and others?
2: You know, it's a great question. And for me, I can really, I can really only answer from the sports side. I, I because I, sports is part of my life since I was born, um, started skating when I was four years old, just because my brothers and sisters did it. And I, you know, they didn't need to get a babysitter, so they got me a pair of skates and brought me along. So in terms, you know, sports has has molded my life in so many ways. And, uh, you know, the lessons I learned, you know, well before making an Olympic team, it was, uh, you know, the camaraderie you make with, Kids growing up, doing the sport, the wins and losses. I, you know, I remember my dad when I was just, just a kid, kind of telling me that, you know, when whether you win or when or or you lose that day. When I see you come off the ice, you know, I don't. I'm not even sure I really want to know which it was. You know, he he wanted us to accept defeat and and you know, and accept winning with the same amount of dignity. And so I always kind of took that with me. Um, it was a huge lesson. Um, I took it with me when I had troubles at the Olympics. I was the first to go and congratulate those who did win. And, you know, I'm still friends with my top competitors from those days. My friend from Germany, my, my Russian friend, we still stay in touch, you know, and, and those are the things that sports gave me more so than, you know, the gold medal on my wall. Um, although, you know, that's a wonderful thing to have, but, uh, it's really not the end all be all of, of what sports are about.
0: That's a really good perspective. I think so many people put so much worth and value and even, themselves based on those accomplishments. And really it is more about the relationship for sure. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering as a young athlete, finding your skills and talents, what did that look like and and what was the road to learning that you had this great skill and ability and how did you navigate honing that in and, and perfecting it?
2: It's always an interesting road. I think for for anyone who's reached a certain level. Rarely, I would say, do you find somebody who's just won everything and every race, everything they've ever done along the way. You may have had success at every level, but uh, it doesn't mean you've won every time you you stepped out on the field or the ice or whatever that may be. For me, man, it was, you know, a lot of it in my younger days was just kind of trying to keep up with my brothers and sisters. Um, In the end, I think that was a huge benefit for me because once I, um, you know, I always believed well, I can do things just as good as they can do it. I, it didn't matter if I was, you know, 10 and my brothers were twice the size of me, then faster or whatever. I felt like I could do it. And I remember, you know, getting to my, to finally when I was uh, making a world team or US team, even as a junior, um, but now skating against the seniors, the guys that I, heard of for so many years. And, and I went there and I skated my first race ever international race was in Switzerland. I never felt intimidated. I always felt, I wasn't, wasn't cocky by any means. Believe me, my brothers taught me not to, not to be that way, but, um, but inside I've just felt like they're no different than my brothers and sisters. They're, you know, maybe they're older than I am, but I can do this just as good as they can. And, and that, you know, that helped me. So I sort, I sort of had that shaping from being the youngest of nine. Um, you know, when I I did other sports growing up, uh, I was a pretty good athlete and everything, baseball, and football. And and so I had to make a decision between those between those sports and skating uh, at about a sophomore, junior in high school is when I decided skating was going to be my ultimate goal I wanted to go to the Olympic games and if I wanted to do that then it becomes full time you can't you can't be a part time athlete and go to the olympics and so so then I made that decision I quit my other sports and I was I was full bore ahead 100% into uh into my sport and you know I then I started to see success pretty early and so I, um, when I did that, I, it was easy. It was easy incentive for me to keep going because I was, I was, I had good success at a young age. And so I figured, all right, I'm still getting bigger and stronger. I'm going to learn techni- technique and get better and better. And, um, so it was always, I never had, I never had trouble. Um, although the training is brutal, I never looked at it like work or a job. It's just what I had to do every day. And I, and I loved it.
1: That's huge. And. I love the confidence piece that you just have in you so naturally from a young age. How did the relationships with your coaches shape your career as an athlete? And how did you take the lessons that your coaches taught you all the way through life? Maybe today,
2: you know, for me, gosh, and, and you look back and there's so many from, from the time I first put on skates to, you know, to, to my Olympic coaches and they all, you know, kind of gave you little tidbits of, of things along the way that you hope hopefully you take with you. And I did, you know, I, I definitely did do that. Now obviously the ones that um you know the ones that were there in the latter part of, of my career. Strangely enough my coach in, in my final Olympics, Peter Miller, was my first coach when I made the national team for the first time. And uh, he was a gold medalist himself, and he just had an amazing way of of motivating, of making anyone believe that, you know, that they're good enough, and and making it fun. And I saw him take. Uh, this may this may not sound the right way, but um, for better or worse, it's 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 the truth. And I don't I don't mean to demean anybody. I'm just saying, I saw him take mediocre talent and make them into Olympians. And um, it doesn't mean they were metal hopefuls or anything, but they went from being, you know, just okay to making Olympic teams. And that's, that's, that's a lot. That's a big deal. And that talk about giving somebody confidence. And he did that for me in different ways, but he knew me and they trusted me to give him the feedback uh, that I You know that he needed to coach, and so coaching the coach-athlete relationship has to go both ways. It can't just be a coach saying do this, 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 and this, and it's going to work. Because number one, every athlete's different. Number two, you have to get the feedback from the athlete because if certain things aren't working, and you just keep doing what what he or she tells you, you may, you know, you might be going down the wrong path. You have to. Um, find out what's working what isn't some days you're so tired you can barely lift your legs and he needs to know that too and uh, there's a fine line between training to that point of peak and going over the hill and and, uh, if you're overtrained, it's hard to it's hard to get back on the upslope you know you start going downhill and uh, and you learn that too along the way look i was I mean, I was pretty young, still for my fourth Olympics, I was 28, but, um, but I had been training really hard since I was 16, so um, I, I knew my body really well by that point, and, and he was uh, great at listening to, to me, and I was great at listening to my body.
0: It sounds like you may suggest that communication is probably one of the biggest keys for coaching any athlete or team. I'm curious though, outside of communication, what advice might you give to younger coaches and athletes who are looking to people like you who have made that great success of achieving a gold medal and how they're planning their journey or envisioning their own journey to get to that point someday.
2: Yeah, I think um, the, well, you said it, the first part is the communication side of it. And it's, but it also has to be alignment of your goals and, you know, yours better be aligned with his or hers because sometimes sometimes You know, like I said before, sometimes that athlete, uh, sometimes making a team is enough. Sometimes, in my first Olympics, for example, I'm 18 years old, I'm fresh out of high school. My only goal that year was to make the Olympic team. I just wanted to be there and experience the games. And, you know, I knew I had no chance of winning a medal. Now, I almost did, I got fourth place, but that wasn't in my thought process. And so, figure out that, what that is when, from day one, you know, what are what are your goals? Where do you want to be, whether it's a year from now or five years or 10 years from now? And the coach needs to do the same thing. And then you kind of bring those together. Um, again, unfortunately for the coach, it's a tough spot. It's a tough job because he may be training, he or she may be training, you know, two five ten other other athletes yeah i don't know how many but it depends on the sport and the setup and if it's your training with the u.s team or, or separately and and so that's a tough job because um t- to make all these different training programs and i'm not saying everyone has to be different every day you can have a basis of the of training and, and where you want to start but once you start getting into specifics and that specific person reaching their peak, that's never the same between two athletes.
1: Yeah, that's so true. With having to take into, you know, your own strengths and weaknesses, did you ever just have to decide that, you know, maybe the coach didn't see something that you thought that you needed? Did you ever just put in extra work that you felt like you needed to get to the next level
2: I would say the answer to that is yes and I did it on my own but he also I didn't hide it from him and what, what that was and I said and it's true he, he was an amazing motivator and a, you know fun to to perform for and, and everything um, but I had some issues with the the 1000 meters 500 meters was my specialty it was my favorite race it's all out from the gun. The thousand meters is is a technically a sprint as well in our sport, except it's a long sprint. If you know anything about sprinting, you're sprinting for over you know a minute and twelve seconds less now, but um, um, that's a long time to sprint. So it's a controlled sprint, right? And, and a lot of endurance is involved. So that was a mental thing for me. I, I had the physical capability to do that. I trained hard to do it. Um, but it got in my head when I started young, I started to die in the last lap. I started to get tired. And if you do that time after time after time, pretty soon you get to that certain point in a race and your brain says, well, this is about where you should be getting tired, you know, and then, and then you do. And so um, so I, my, the point of my story is, and the answer to your question is I went um, and I, I started working with a sports psychologist on the side and but again i told my coach and he was all fine with it but and we did a lot of things to to get uh to get me to feel the same when i stepped to the the line for a thousand meters as i did for the 500 and it was a process it took three years um but as we said you know it turns out the thousand meters was my last chance at gold and and i ended up winning
1: how did you get to going from hitting a wall, you know, at a certain stretch of a race, to basically training your mind, to train your body, to being able to handle that and push through?
2: So it happens in stages, and it happens. You know, when I when I look back after the fact, it it it, it really was a process. Now there's a couple things that couple of things we did um, that will sound ridiculous, and they did sound ridiculous when we started them. Like I would, I would, <laughs> I would have notepads. I would have a pen. I would write down. I love the 1,000 meters every single day. I would have it posted all over my house, in my bathroom, in my refrigerator. I would see it then everywhere. Um, and, and then in my diary, my journal every night, I would, I would write that um and then you also write other things down and and you start to see that all of a sudden early in the season i had a a good thousand meters and then i had a couple bad ones but then you'd go wait a minute i did have a good one there and i'll never forget um this was in about november before the games in uh in february and we're at a world cup in the netherlands and it was wednesday we were doing a tempo workout and i was skating just resting along the track and in my head i said to myself i can't i can't wait for the thousand meters this week and i I literally stopped because i never ever ever thought that in my life i was always excited about the 500 but i remember i stopped and i just went to my coach and i said man i just had a crazy thought but i can't wait for the thousand this weekend sure enough i won it that week and And then from that point on, it was like, all right, now I can, you know, I can start look, looking forward to this. But again, that was two and a half years after we started this. So it doesn't happen overnight, but it's, um, if you keep at it, it's, it works.
0: That's amazing. Like, Honestly, there's so much power in our brains, and I think people are really more open to tapping into that. Like these things that you were doing were kind of revolutionary at that time. People weren't really open to that, so it probably did feel super weird and crazy. There,
2: there there was a bit of a, I don't know, almost a little taboo when when you talked about sports psychology, you know, and because they thought, well, well, you're not tough enough to handle it on your own. But it's not that at all. Everybody there's, there's psychology in everything we do. And in sports, it's crazy how much is involved. So why not, why not use a mind expert who knows about that stuff to, to help you think in different ways. And so, yeah, I was, I'm not going to say I was the pioneer of it, but I was pretty early in the, in the process, at least the ones who admitted to using them.
0: That's awesome. (laughs) Um, I'm curious with all of this talk about using a sports psychologist, like were there, uh, other than writing these post-its, were there other tactics or tools mm-hmm. that you had in your pocket that you were able to pull out quickly if there was like a slip up or something that would happen that might get your head out of the game
2: for a minute? Yeah, you know, there, there are little triggers that if uh, if if things start to go where you can feel yourself thinking negatively or or not seeing it the way you want to see it. Yeah, there are little trigger, trigger words or thoughts that I could kind of bring myself back to and then kind of go into my, uh, what we called kind of, uh, called my war room, which is, it's ironic because my war room was the place I went to relax in my head. It was like, get completely relaxed and then visualize and see the race and see everything. But, you know, that's what, that's what we called it. That's when he said that, go to your war room. I knew what he meant and I knew how to get there. Immediately, there was there were so many things. There were I, I was religious at, at keeping a journal every day. Not only the, the things I did every day for training, but what I ate, how many meals, how much, how many hours of sleep I got. I mean, the list is a big list, and I, I would fill it out every single day. And so then you can you can always when you have that information, it's it's like a a database. You can look back. Maybe it's the following year. All right, I was skating really, really well. In December of last year, why is that? What was I doing leading up? And all you got to do is go back to your journal and look at it, you know, and and instead of trying to to remember um, things, you've got not only what you did, but you got specifics of what you felt, what you were thinking and why you felt that.
1: I'm also a big believer in using a journal and use one myself. It's so helpful. I mean, if you're not tracking on what you're doing, how can you really even know if you're making progress or not? So, you know, obviously to be an Olympic gold medalist and in the sport for so many years, this was your life. You basically trained and, everything was just circulating around training, you know, that was the center of your life. So how was it after, you know, 94 winning the gold? Did you just shut it down completely? Or was there like a gradual exit out of sports? And you know, how involved are you in sports today?
2: It is brutal when you stop. It's, it's, It doesn't matter if you won or lost. It doesn't matter if you won gold in your last race. And it was the biggest story in the country that year. It's awful when you have to stop because you, um, I say have to, I chose to, but you know, as you just put it, it, it's every day it's. It, it is your job. It, I, and I said it, I didn't feel like it because I loved what I did, but it's the routine, it's the training, it's the, the diet, it's the sleep, it's keeping the journal, it's all of that. And then one day for me, that was, you know, well, I finished the season after, after the Olympics, but, you know, I can't say I trained a whole lot after that. But, you know, one day I woke up and I didn't have a race next week. I didn't have to go to the track that day. I didn't, it didn't matter how many hours of sleep I got that next day. And that routine that you've been doing for so long, all of a sudden it's not there. And I I understand why so many athletes come back after retiring. And I'm not even saying that they maybe were as meticulous as I was in all those things, but they still had that routine of training. And then the competition to look for, I think that's, I think it's kind of why we all do it ultimately, because we love to get out there and compete and push our bodies and, Um, and then that's gone. And so, you know, it, it's tough. Um, for me, it, it, you know, I did, I was super busy for a couple of years anyway, doing a lot of speaking and, you know, some endorsement things. And so it kept my mind off of that a little bit, but, but it still mentally, it gets to you. It's like, so I stayed active. I still exercise every day to this very day. Um, you know, I ran marathons. I was a sprinter running marathons just so I could um, have something to train for. Um, and then, you know, hopefully you can put that into your family. Hopefully you can put that into whatever it is, what line of work you end up doing. And, and so for me, I, you know, I was able to do that. Um, I was really lucky, you know, even as I look like not back now, because certain athletes had have a lot of difficulties, and some, you know, doubly, some didn't get what they wanted out of their careers as an athlete, and then they're done, and then it's really hard. Others did, and then they're still, they're done, and, and then, then you don't know what to do. So, luckily, you know, and I didn't go through this, um, but the USOC has, has programs for just what we're talking about, where athletes, um, how, how they can get adjusted to their new life, how they try to get them into whether it's schooling or or business um, and to help them adjust to the exact things we're we're talking about here. So, but it is a tough, tough thing to get through.
0: Yeah, certainly a huge adjustment for Mm -hmm. anyone who's had a life of athletics to go toward not having something to compete or work toward. Well, we have a few minutes left and I'd like to just kind of wrap the call with maybe you sharing something that you are looking forward to with your foundation and just like how people can kind of follow along with that and connect with you there.
2: Sure. So actually, um, we just finished just literally last weekend. Um, we had my big fundraiser and it was it was touch and go for a while with COVID and, and could we pull it off? Well, we did. We were careful about it and um, but we have a, a golf tournament, uh, here in Charlotte, we bring in a bunch of celebrity friends and they play with sponsors. We have a concert that's out of this world. My friends from Rascal Flats, um, Joe Don Rooney and Jay DeMarcus come and they bring a friend and they play an amazing concert. Um, we have all the, you know, the fundraising, uh, auctions and so forth. It was, the weather was perfect. We did really well. And so, you know, all that money goes between my foundation and the clubhouse I told you about earlier and you know if anyone wants to um, help out with any of those things any of our foundations uh, mine is is djfoundation.org can go find that and then there's also coolkidscampaign.org again they're two separate foundations but we work together and we do great things for for kids and families uh, affected by cancer So. I appreciate the plug and um, appreciate you guys uh, talking to you guys today. It was fun.
0: Oh my gosh, this has been such an honor for us. I was 11 when you won gold and I remember it vividly because everyone in my household was screaming at the top (laughs) of their lungs. So this is just a huge treat and we are so grateful for your time.
2: Thank you both. I appreciate it and I wish you all the best.
0: Wow. That interview with Dan was so great. I think he had lots of awesome points, but I specifically loved his thoughts on overcoming challenges and hearing about how he kept an athlete journal to document each day so that he could better track his performance on the ice. Every athlete looking to grow in their skills and abilities should totally keep track of that information. SportFuels Life is now making that easy for you. As a Sport Feels Life podcast listener, you're hearing here first that we are launching our very own athlete and coaching performance journal next week. If you want to be among the first to find out when it officially launches, head on over to sportfeelslife.com and register for your free membership. Not only will you get insider info, but you'll also get other sweet benefits like exclusive member pricing, tips and training, educational resources, and more. And as always, if you liked this episode of the Sport Feels Life podcast, take a moment and leave us a review and let us know what you thought. Thanks so much for listening.